0: you doing, Bryce? I'm
1: doing great, thanks.
0: Thank you for joining Holy Human today. We're so excited to have you.
1: Well, Thank you. It's a, it's a real honor to meet up with you. That's I've, very kind of you. I've enjoyed watching your podcast and I consider it a great thing to be listed with the other folks that you've had a chance to visit with.
0: Oh yeah, our interviews are honestly some of my favorites and now you get to be on one. Whoa. It's so exciting. So Bryce... Why don't you introduce, I still feel kind of funny calling you Bryce, (laughs) (laughs) Brother Fifield, Um, Professor. He is a very important man you'll learn in a moment. Why don't you introduce a little bit about yourself and your life, your career, your interests?
1: The proudest thing I am is a father and a grandfather and husband, but my career has taken me all around the United States. I'm a professor in special education rehabilitation here at Utah State University, but I've had a interesting career that is taking me to school districts in Southeast Idaho to University of Idaho in Northern Idaho, the Navajo Community College down in the Four Corners area, and Minot State University out in North Dakota, where we lived for twelve years with our family. My professional training has been in school psychology and counseling and special education rehabilitation, and I've done research on disability policies and practices and different national and state levels, but kind of the thing that's piqued my interest of late has been disabilities in the church and the intersection between disabilities and faith, especially among our church members.
0: Yeah, talk about a perfect fit. That's like exactly what we love learning about and we're excited to learn from you today. All right. Well, you yourself, do you have a disability?
1: I do not. Okay. And no one in my immediate family has a disability. Okay. Of course, we don't have to go very far. Parents, grandparents, cousins, nephews, and nieces have disabilities.
0: Was that what kind of got you started in being interested in disability? Well, was real my, life connection?
1: My dad was in this field, and he was actually a professor in special education here at Utah State University. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with disabilities as a family issue, not a lived issue, but as uh, a professional interest. Hmm. So that kind of got me going in a direction where it became more of a personal and professional exploration.
0: Okay. It's been a part of your career for a long time. You've had a variety of experiences in your career with disability and teaching and learning this particular research project that you were involved in, that's what we're focusing on today with Holy Human. So I found out about Bryce from an article that was posted online about how there's this man that's trying to pull together all this research for early disabled saints. What got you started on this project, Bryce?
1: We lived in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. I was called as a bishop in a family ward and got the chance to work with all sorts of welfare issues and of course we were dealing with disability issues when we're dealing with a lot of welfare issues of ward members when they're needing assistance and support so that was a kind of an interesting professional experience but we had the chance uh, to take our youth on a trek journey and from north dakota we loaded up buses and we drove overnight from north dakota down to wyoming got hand carts and crossed the river and climbed rocky ridge and did all that camped out and it was just a really neat experience Mm. but it was just a point where it sort of dawned on me as I was walking along those trails that a hundred thousand saints had crossed that same spot they had climbed that same ridge I remember standing and looking at one of the mile markers it shows that it was the intersection of the Oregon Trail and the Mormon Trail and the California Trail and the Pony Express, thinking all these people crossed the same spot, albeit in the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s. What was their life like? What was their experience? Were they sweating, aching, huffing and puffing going up over the Continental Divide as much as I was? Mm -hmm. And then I started to think about, well, what was it like for someone that might have had a disability? Mm -hmm. What would have their experience been like crossing Rocky Ridge or crossing the river? Would they be dealing with the same kind of mosquitoes and the muck that we were? How would they be dealing with it? That would have been 2007 or so, I think. That got me kind of interested in this topic, and it just kind of idled there until we moved back here to Utah in 2008. Moving here to Utah State University, where there's a lot of historical records, uh, I thought that that might be an interesting area to kind of carve out and, and explore. And there are some uh, folklore stories about pioneers that had disabilities. They've been published in The Friend. They're in the Sunday School manuals. But I was just had a feeling that that you know, was just the tip of the iceberg. And we wanted to find out what the authentic stories were. What was the story in their own voice? And so that's kind of where we started exploring.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you use
1: the word folklore? Well, in folklore, it's a story that is passed down from family to family. And it's hard to pin down the authenticity of the story. Mm-hmm. So saying that you had a uncle that crawled across the plains because he is lame in one leg. And that's a story that's been passed down and passed down. You might even have the uncle's name. Well it's a story. We don't have the documentation. We don't have a a second verification of it. There's no external provenance that indicates that the story is authentic.
0: Mm. And disability, when you're searching for stories that include disability, is there an extra challenge?
1: You know, for a, a person that had a disability, they often were not journal keepers. At the end of the day, They didn't have time to write in a journal, uh, Mm. or they didn't have the ability or the resources to write in a journal. Mm -hmm. So their stories are often second and third hand.
0: Mm, Okay. When I was trying to search online and find these stories, I was finding almost nothing. But yeah, this is definitely an extra layer of why these stories are hard to find.
1: Often you'd have maybe a few words or a few sentences Mm -hmm. about somebody, and if you can... Cross-reference those with other sources that are not just repeating the same story. Mm-hmm. Then it moves into a more verifiable story of more fact mm-hmm. that the person had a disability and what the nature of the disability was, how it was affecting their ability to navigate the environment, meet the demands of the day, demands of the trek. Mm-hmm. There's so much area that you could explore with disabilities historically, mm-hmm. but I wanted to look at just what what happened during. That trek time from 1846 to, uh, to about 1869 when the railroad went in, that's the period of time we were looking at. What was it like for someone that had to go across the plains and, uh, in most cases, walk? Mm-hmm. Many that had some impairments were in the sick wagon
0: mm-hmm.
1: or they were in a wagon or a couple occasions they were on horses. That could not have been very comfortable. <laughs>
0: yeah, no kidding. You mentioned earlier that you used the university's resources to find some of these stories, and you had assistance as well. Well,
1: early on I was able to get an undergraduate student to help me. We got a little bit of funding from the university to do a undergraduate research project. Mm. I was able to recruit an undergraduate student from the history department and she just grabbed hold of this, and she was absolutely fearless. She was in a seminar with the church historian, and she cornered him after the, his, his presentation and said, Have you got anything about pioneers with disabilities? Mm-hmm. And he just drew a total blank.
0: Wow. And said,
1: I, I, That's such a great question. I don't know. And so he wrote the name of one of his researchers, one of the uh, church history department staff, So the two of us went down and visited with him down in Salt Lake. And he opened up the vault, so to speak, and gave us access to some of the resources that they had. They were just barely starting to get the diaries and the uh, databases set up that are now readily available. They were digitized. And so our next step was to try and figure out what language, what terms to search on.
0: Right, probably the word disability wasn't anywhere. That that wasn't
1: it, yeah. Yeah, what kind of words did you... uh, things that we cringe at now today, being called an idiot Mm -hmm. or having idiocy, Mm -hmm. as if that's a kind of disease. Mm -hmm. Those are pejoratives now. Mm -hmm. But that was the language of the time. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, we tried to find publications Mm -hmm. from that time and find out what words were used. But we also went to the New Testament because we figured that was probably the common denominator for a lot of the early saints.
0: Yeah, very and, smart. And
1: so that's what those were the terms that we started to use. And we hit pay dirt with some of those just interesting, interesting stories. Mm-hmm. And that sort of started the process of just kind of cross-referencing and building up a list mm-hmm. of candidates, uh, early Utah immigrants, that may have had a disability. And we really tried to look for corroborating evidence that it was not just Uncle so and so's recollection of so and so, but down the line, right, and so that there was some kind of triangulation, if you will, on the, on the story.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Do you know off the top of your head how many stories you oh, found that is since such a great, this project?
1: That's such a great question. The ballpark figure that we use for trying to understand how many people in a population or in a community have a disability is we use a, a number kind of like about twenty percent. Mm -hmm. that's an approximation. It's based on a normal curve and some suppositions. It goes up, it goes down. There are some that would argue there were more people that had disabilities in olden days because of lack of medical care. And there are some that say, well, there are more people that died in the olden days because of injuries or disabilities. And so there were not as many. Mm. I don't know what the truth is. So we just use a 20% number. And if you use a ballpark figure of the 100,000, 150,000 saints that immigrated in that period of time, well, that gives you an idea of maybe about 20-some thousand people uh, had disabilities by our definitions today. Wow. And, uh, you know, we don't have anywhere near that.
0: Uh, Yeah.
1: But we do have about, somewhere over about 1,000. Stories. Identified people. Not all of them come up with stories.
0: Oh, right. Um, Identified people uh, with disabilities. uh, And Mm
1: -hmm. we can't always triangulate on those with a couple of different sources of information. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we've probably got, uh, I'm going to guess, information enough to kind of piece together stories on about uh, 100, 200 different people.
0: Do you know if the stories were a mix of people who were born with disabilities or people who became disabled later in life? Do we have any stories of neurodiversity as well? Oh yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. So as we started going through this, we were able to start dividing out people that had a disability from birth or prior to the trek. Mm-hmm. People that had a disability that occurred on the trek, which would typically be because of health or an injury. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of ignored those that had disabilities that occurred after the trek because of our interest in this time frame. Mm, But we also looked backwards because the U.S. Census for 1850, 60, and 70 had a spot on there to code whether the person had a disability. So that was one of the places where we had corroborating evidence of a person that had a disability. So we've looked at every single page of the 1850, 1860, and 1870 censuses for Utah, Idaho, and Arizona. And we cross-checked to see if we could find our identified people on those census uh, indicating whether they had disability or not. Oh,
0: more triangulation. Yeah. Very smart. Yeah,
1: and then the same thing with England. Uh, England had a a similar thing. So some of the English immigrants that had uh, had disability, and there were many, that uh, would be indicated on the U.K. census.
0: Like for all ages too, like even people under a head of household. Very interesting. Okay. So we want to share sort of a mix of stories today just from Bryce's research. Bryce, what kind of story do you want to start?
1: Well, all of these are my favorite people in the whole wide world. Someday I'm going to get to meet these folks. Uh, And I am sure that some of them are going to say, you really screwed this up on me. Why did you do that?
0: That's not how it happened. (laughs) uh,
1: Yeah, I was there. You were not. Oh, Uh, my gosh. uh, So we're really dependent on, you know, what other people said about these stories. Mm -hmm. One that is just a delightful story for me is Peter Ballantyne. In about 1811, 1812, somewhere around there. He's actually born in Scotland. And the person behind this story is actually Peter's brother. His story is going to be more familiar to everybody as Richard Ballantyne. Richard Ballantyne was the founder of the First Sunday School and served a mission to India. He had uh, written several things, but we never hear about Peter. Peter was his older brother, Mm -hmm. and the Ballantyne family had done fairly well in Scotland. And uh, Peter, I don't know exactly what his disability was. I suspect it may have been some kind of a mental health issue or something. But Richard says from his journal, My brother Peter, who was the oldest surviving member of the family, was afflicted with insanity of mind and became so dangerous to my mother that... We had to take him to the Crichton Institute. Now, this was probably his stepmother. Mm -hmm. And they decided to put him in a hospital, in a clinic. You could find out about this clinic in England. So the family had resources to put him there. That was not the case with a lot of poor people. Mm -hmm. So he was getting some kind of treatment. I don't know what it was. It probably wasn't really what we would count good therapy. (laughs) A
0: healthy treatment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But...
1: uh, When Richard joined the church and determined to move the family from Scotland to the Great Basin, Richard went and got Peter. He sprung him from the institution and said, you're coming with us. Oh,
0: that's wonderful.
1: I don't know how cognitive Peter was, but he made the trek across with the family. The family lost their money. As they came across the plains, I can only imagine it. Peter's own perspective on this. But Richard, his brother, says that there were several times that at the end of the day after they had made camp, you know, first of all, you need to know that the company going across the plains usually got strung out. There would be people that were going fast and they'd go around the slow pokes and the slow mm-hmm. pokes would stay behind. They didn't want to be in the dust, so they'd maybe go a little to the right or to the left. They'd stay behind, and then there were the gaggers that would, you know, I just don't walk as fast as you guys, and, uh, and so they would bring up the rear.
0: You'd think that would translate to how people drive in Utah, but uh, like you, people still...
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's the fast lane, and there's the slow lane.
0: People still and, don't know. and
1: the fast lane has nothing to do with how fast the cars are going in them. Exactly, but at the end of the day, they all had to kind of congregate because that's where the water was. That's where the feed was for the animals. Mm, okay. And so, at the end of the day, the lalligaggers would come in maybe two or three or four or five hours after everybody, maybe even after dinner's done.
0: Oh, wow! And
1: so, Richard would go around to the various families in his company, mm-hmm. and I believe he was like captain of of ten or captain of a hundred. So he had some responsibility for the company, mm-hmm. but there were several times that his brother was not to be found. He'd fallen behind, mm-hmm. and Richard says, there's this one entrance from July the 17th. My brother strayed from our wagons and lost us, and I traveled all night in search of him and crossed the Platte River about 2 o'clock in the morning to Brother Kimball's company. He had to go back probably about 10 miles to where the other company following him up was. Wow. Did not find him there, nor hear anything of him. I was afraid he might have traveled out to the bluffs or returned back, and that the wolves or other ravenous animals might destroy him. This occasioned us great distress of mind. But when we returned to camp about 7 o'clock in the morning, we were thankful to find that he had returned about an hour before.
0: It is really interesting about how among everything else that was happening on Trek, all the hardships, the difficulties that family members, and disabled people themselves have. Burning
1: buffalo chips for fire Mm -hmm. uh, to cook, or getting clean water, or dealing with the animals. Yeah. All those things.
0: Among all that, there's extra things that we have to be concerned with and watch out for. And be aware of, yeah.
1: And in the case of the Ballantines, you know, Richard and Peter ended up having houses very close together in mm. Bountiful, early settlements of Bountiful. Wow. Peter died in eighteen ninety three, and his younger brother died five years later.
0: Wow!
1: The story of Peter just well, it just tells me so much about him, mm-hmm. about his brother, mm-hmm. and about you know others in the company. I don't know what other folks thought about Peter. I, there may have been some tolerance. There may have been some intolerance. Oh, there he goes again. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, or why do we got to be dealing with this you know that kind of stress brings out the best and the worst in all of us
0: yeah thank goodness for his brother yeah
1: but it's such a story of you know the brother watching out the fact that he said i'm going to spring you from this place the the crichton institute and you're going to come with us
0: yeah didn't leave him behind
1: yeah but not having any notion of what it was going to be like
0: yeah that's true too
1: Well, there are so many that we don't have much detail about. We have this one story of Maria Christina Eriksson. She was born in Sweden in 1826. All we know is that she was born lame. And in the census, she's listed as the crippled wife of her husband, Sven Eriksson. Hmm. They traveled by railroad to Nebraska to the jumping off point Mm -hmm. and joined a wagon train. Uh, But there were many nights on the trail. There's this one quote, many nights on the trail, she had to be carried into camp. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now that tells me somewhere along the day, she had to either get out of the wagon or she started the day off walking. Yeah. And at the end of the day, she had to be carried into camp.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. There
1: was a sick wagon, but you, you had to be really sick to be in the sick wagon. And what we know from some of the journals is that there was no pride in being in the sick. You had to show your independence. It was, a, it was a shame to be in the sick wagon.
0: Wow.
1: Getting stuck somewhere along the line, just running out of steam, being unable to keep walking uh, mm-hmm. because of the disability, whatever. She'd have to be carried into camp. What the story doesn't tell us is who was it that carried her?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Was
1: it her family? Was it other other members? Did they trade off? Mm -hmm. What was carrying like? Did they do a fireman's carry? Did they do a piggyback? What was it like?
0: That's interesting. I'd never heard this stigma around the sick wagon before. Obviously, Trek was hard for everyone, and I guess people didn't want to be an extra burden, and that puts a lot of pressure on disabled people to try to do more than they can. Yeah. Walk further than we have strength, which we're not supposed to do. Oh, wow. It's very interesting. Just
1: generates all sorts of things to ponder about, doesn't it?
0: Really, I wonder for her if she was hesitant to go on trek, if she knew what she was facing and if she was determined to not be in the sick wagon or if she felt pressured to not do it even if if it would have been a benefit to her. Wow. And then, of course, like, who are the people around her? Did she feel like she had a lot of resources of people to rely on, or did she feel like she was a burden to all these people who were trying to help her?
1: Yeah. This is one of the hypotheses that have come up in our exploration of this, is was there any indication that church leaders advised folks with disabilities not to go on trek, to somehow stay behind Mm-hmm. And there is some evidence to some degree that that did happen.
0: Really? Like church leaders whose names we would recognize?
1: We've not found statements like okay. that. But there would be company organizers or people that would be organizing the emigration. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the church leaders, but their agents mm-hmm. or others. But there is some evidence that, that did occur. Usually it was tied up with money. It cost mm-hmm. so much to get across. So the Perpetual emigration Fund... If you're going to come across the plains and you need a wagon, you can't afford it. So don't come. Mm. There's not enough money in the perpetual immigration fund to pay for a wagon for you to go. Wow. You have to walk. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of saints walked across the plains. We have kind of two perspectives on that. One is it was an arduous, painful, horrible journey. But it was a rite of passage. Mm. Thousands and thousands of people made it across the plains. There's a whole generation of time of saints in the uh, early Utah years where everybody came across the plains. Yeah, That was a common experience.
0: It's interesting, like, while you're trying to find these stories, how there would be a lot of stories missing if disabled people were not allowed to, well, not allowed, not given the opportunity to come. Well, not allowed, would you say that could be?
1: Could be? It could be. I I don't know if it was not allowed or if it was discouraged.
0: Discouraged. It's interesting how it's also poor people. Like, it's marginalized people in different ways that were not able to come for different reasons.
1: Well, sure. Somebody becomes disabled. Default in England and in Europe is going to be they're going to not have a means for a career or a, uh, an income, mm-hmm. and so they were often very poor. So that was one of the reasons, I think, that Brigham Young was so interested in the handcart model. Mm-hmm. Having people ride in wagons or walk behind wagons carrying all their worldly belongings was expensive, especially when you're thinking of maybe tens of thousands of people coming. Mm-hmm. And that is what opened up for folks with disabilities coming across was the dropping of the cost and the incurring of the debt for the Perpetual Immigration Fund. And that's why in the Martin Handcart Company, Mm -hmm. we had so many people with disabilities that were in that group that ended up suffering and getting caught in the the storms of the winter in Wyoming.
0: They were delayed because of trying to get access
1: well, there's a lot of factors that, that uh, resulted in the delay for that. It wasn't just that these of why folks disabled with people were in, but that the company. the number of people that were, they were blind, they were crippled, they were deaf. Uh, there, were, there was a higher percentage of folks that had limitations in the early handcart companies. There was a pent up demand among that segment of the saints in in Europe that wanted to come but couldn't afford it when the handcarts became available and it became more. Financially accessible, Mm -hmm. that's what brought them over.
0: Wow. Very interesting.
1: There's this little kid, Francis Brooks. Parents called him Frank. Uh, Mm. Frank was born in 1849. He was born in Wales. And he had a mobility impairment. It doesn't say whether he was immobile, whether he was paralyzed, whether he uh, was able to walk with crutches. But at the age of six, he and his family immigrated, and they were in the Edmund Bunker Company. In the censuses, he does not show up as crippled, but he lived with his brother George in St. George, he never married. He passed away in 1913 at the age of 62. Now, we don't know a lot about him. He is related to Juanita Brooks, who is a noted Western historian. But this little six-year-old kid was coming across with the Bunker Company. They were coming in tandem with other hand card companies. And I love this story because the hero of this story is not the, the Brooks family, But it was somebody that was with them, and his name was John Perry. He records this note in his journal. He said, I labored very hard to help some widows and fatherless and the weak to pull their carts up hilly places, besides pulling my own along with my wife and my sister's young daughter. Indians met us sometimes and helped us pull our carts, which was great fun for them. We had no trouble of any kind in crossing the plains, only fatigue. I worked myself down. I did pull Samuel Brooks' boy Frank for some hundreds of miles as he was an invalid.
0: Wow.
1: John Perry went on to found the Tabernacle Choir. Oh. Wow. So there's these little you know, these little linkages that come back to other other parts of church history or church lore That's that we're really familiar cool. with.
0: Yeah. I actually had never heard that Native Americans helped on Mormon Trek.
1: Well, according to Brother Perry They had fun doing it. Wow. (laughs) Sometimes the stories are pretty detailed because you get bits and pieces from different people. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Joseph Smith Crossley was born in 1836 in Lancashire, England, And he died on the 5th of November, 1856, now that should ring bells, at Martin's Cove.
0: Oh.
1: Brother Crossley was listed as a cripple. He had been crippled from birth, and he was in the Martin Handcart Company. We get this information from the life stories of his mother and his sister, His family joined the church, and then his stepfather came across the Rocky Mountains ahead of his family to get settled and to send money back. They were not a wealthy family. We have this interesting statement from his sister's life history. It says, The handcart plan was introduced into England, and it seemed so cheap and easy, only nine pounds or $45 in American money for each of us. We were so anxious to join our father and many friends who had gone before that we decided to go. Mm -hmm. Mother was a small, frail woman, and there was Joseph, our crippled brother, who could never walk the 1,300 miles across the plains. But Hannah and I were strong, healthy girls, and Ephraim was quite a lad and very willing to go. Mm -hmm. So we gathered together what clothing and bedding we would be able to take, and sold our little house and all else we had, and bade farewell to our many friends in merry old England. Then she goes on and says, It was hard work. We always had to pull Joseph along. But what was that to a girl of 14, robust and strong? Mm -hmm. All went well until our supplies ran low. Then we were put on rations and began to weaken and making travel slower every day. September came and the first frost fell upon us. Out in the open with few clothes and little shelter, then began our real suffering. But we tried to be brave and not complain any more than necessary to each other. The children felt that we should cheer dear little mother and help her all we could. But poor Joseph, it was so hard on him, jolting over the uneven road. He suffered greatly and became so thin and pale. I would do my best, anything to keep his spirits up not to let him grow sad as he really was a bright, happy, cheerful fellow. We had always cared so tenderly for him, and he missed the good nourishing food and the comforts he had. But he seldom complained, only dwindled away in body and spirit. She writes about his death. In Crossing the River, he got wet and chilled and died on the 5th of November. We left him by the roadside. There were five deaths that night, and the ground was so frozen that we could not dig a grave. So we wrapped them in a large blanket and left them by the side of the trail. Wow. It was an awful thing for mother to bear, but she did not complain of the Lord and did not lose faith. She felt that it had been a merciful hand that had bereft her of her son rather than a hard one.
0: That's heartbreaking after traveling so far. I mean, that must have been how far? Like a thousand miles already down the way? Yeah. To make it that far and lose him. Yeah.
1: Philander Dibble. I'm fascinated by this story. The 1850 census says that Philander Dibble was an idiot, and 1850 was when they were still in Council Bluffs. Okay. family was waiting to come across. He was 12 years old at the time. We think that he probably had a cognitive impairment. Maybe he was a little bit on the spectrum, although we didn't use that kind of language. Autistic? Uh, autistic. The term idiot means generally someone that could not care for themselves, couldn't communicate, couldn't uh, cognitively process information.
0: Couldn't verbally communicate?
1: Yeah, couldn't verbally communicate. Okay. Whether he was able to communicate, otherwise, it doesn't say very much. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. We don't know very much about him, but we know more about his dad. His dad's name was Philo. He had joined the church and was moving around with the saints. He was in Missouri. He was in Liberty. He was evacuated to Quincy. He settled in Nauvoo. They left Nauvoo. He had given up his farm in Ohio so he was with wow. the saints as they were moving around. Yeah. They left Nauvoo in 1846, but they had to spend some time in Council Bluffs before they immigrated. And so they left there in 1851, which was about five years after Brigham Young had already left. Mm-hmm. The story kind of gets lost because Philo and Philander had the same names. son and dad. Mm. And so the record kind of got mixed up between who was whom. Mm -hmm. But we think that Philander, the younger boy, had a developmental disability. The story is that his dad gave him a blessing and tried mightily to have faith to cure him. And uh, Mm. this is kind of an illustration of the challenges of the faith to be healed And the faith not to be healed. And the faith to forge ahead in pursuit of that goal. Yeah. The reason this one has struck me so much is Philo Dibble, his dad, wrote the lyrics to one of our hymns that we use. It's called The Happy Day is Rolled Along, or now it's been reissued as The Happy Day at Last Has Come. Hmm. And that was our mission song.
0: Oh, really? Uh, on your on mission? my
1: mission. Wow. Happy days rolled along.
0: It's really humbling the way this story was recorded. It makes me wonder if the disabled person was seeking to be healed or if it was more the family. And that's a hard thing. Obviously, we don't have a lot of information to really know that. But there's obviously a lot of different perspectives between the actual disabled person and their families. And not knowing the actual disabled person's thoughts. I want to give a little space for that. But also me myself, I've gone through a lot of emotions with that concept. Like if I have enough faith, could I be healed? I mean, there are miracles that still happen, yeah, yeah. but it's, Humbling to see that this isn't just something that I've gone through, that it's been happening for centuries of disabled people. Well, at least
1: since 1851. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure
0: before then, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. of people having these same questions. There can be pain with these questions. There can be pain in believing in a God that would allow you to be disabled and have a hard time with it. And then there can be rejoicing and love and feeling connected to a God who brings these circumstances into your life and guides you through them and you can still feel guided and power through
1: God. And I don't know that we are now any more sophisticated with the extra 150 years of study by the Brethren and instruction in general conferences and articles published in the New Era and Ensign and the Children's Friend. I don't know that we're any more sophisticated now In Mm -hmm. our understanding and our ability to think through these issues, do we still feel guilty for having feelings of being set aside because we were not healed when we prayed for it? Or are we better able to say, well, it's not God's will right now. Mm -hmm. Well, when is it going to be God's will? Do we get a little bit edgy when we're we're wrestling with those things? Are we better able to say, all right, well, we can trust in the Lord. Are we doing it any better than these good saints did back then? So many of these stories kind of prompt us into considering current events, our own experience, our own challenges. I don't know. I think we've got a long ways to go yet.
0: There is definitely space to mourn that. I believe revelation comes as the brethren ask questions and as the saints ask questions, and we are led to God with these questions. I feel like the church disability website, they've done a fair amount of trying to answer questions. They have said if someone has a disability, it's not the sin of the parents and it references scriptures there. But yeah, this this question in particular, the scriptures have a lot of stories of miraculous healings and having the faith to be healed. It feels like as a disabled person, when you read the scriptures... Anytime it talks about any level of disability, it's talking about faith also. So these are really major questions. And it is interesting to feel at the same time connected through having these questions, but also mournful that we haven't really received answers. And maybe it is because it is so individual, whatever each person needs to experience and whatever their disability is. But I hope in my heart that disability does become a bigger conversation with the brethren.
1: Thomas Giles was born in 1820 in Wales, and he started working with his father, who was working as a coal miner in underground mines. In 1843, he married a lady by the name of Margaret Thomas, and later that year, they met the Mormon missionaries and at first he says that their preaching had little effect on him. He was active and dedicated in his association with a Baptist church at the time. Mm -hmm. In October of the following year, in 1844, he encountered the missionaries again, and he noted that he started to feel the impressions of the Holy Ghost, and he was baptized November 1st in 1844. Mm -hmm. He was very closely involved with Franklin D. Richards and John Taylor and other missionaries in England at the time. And he was appointed to the presidency of a branch in the area and later to the presidency of the conference, which was like our stakes. Okay. In the summer of 1848, he was working underground when a large piece of rock or coal fell on him. And the injury... Destroyed his vision.
0: Wow! He
1: later said that it popped his eyes out. That's what he said. He said it popped his eyes out. The
0: pressure of it. I, I, don't it, it, speaking, it like. I don't know if speaking.
1: I don't know if he's speaking figuratively or yeah. or literally. But as a result, he was blind. Wow! Knocked out both my eyes and crushed and injured me. But through the mercy and power of God, I was speedily restored to health and strength. He said, "I have no eyes, therefore cannot see." But in about a month after this accident happened, I was again enabled to go forth and preach.
0: As a missionary? As a missionary. Wow.
1: And we know this blindness continues. Mm-hmm. In 1856, he and his wife Margaret decided to take advantage of the handcart plan. Mm-hmm. So that they it was finally cheap enough for him and his family to go. So they came across with a large number of Welsh immigrants and they joined the Bunker Company. Not far from Fort Laramie, their daughter Maria became sick and she died. And in Fort Laramie, Thomas's wife, Margaret, gave birth to another baby girl, Elizabeth. But neither mother nor daughter survived. So they are buried at Fort Laramie. Because of his blindness, his sons were sent back along the trail to join the Hunt Wagon Train Company, and other friends of the Giles family. Mm. And Thomas continued on with the bunker company until he became very sick. After a short layover at Fort Bridger, so this is past Rocky Ridge, and this is coming down into the last stretch into the valley, the company moved on and left two men behind to bury Thomas waiting for him to die.
0: Like he was sick, not dead yet. Yeah, two people were left behind to stay the, the, with him until he passed. And through.
1: and the, this Hunt Company was coming behind them.
0: I see. Okay.
1: And so you know, there's several companies that are strung out, mm-hmm. and there. But they said, "You guys stay here. When he dies, bury him." Okay. Parley P. Pratt was coming the other direction, and stopped and gave Brother Giles an administration. Like a blessing. A blessing. Okay. And Thomas recovered enough that he was able to continue, and so he uh, regained his health and caught up with the company.
0: Wow.
1: He entered the valley in October 2nd, 1856. He was blind. He'd buried his wife, two daughters on the plains, and his sons were still in the Hunt Company, a couple of weeks behind him. Mm. Thomas's sons, Joseph and Hiram. Mm-hmm. Survived the trek, but when they came in, they were frostbitten and emaciated, and they joined their father in December 1856. And Thomas would eventually marry Hannah Evans Brown, who was the woman who took care of the boys in the company. In and, the other company? Yeah, uh, take care of oh. sons on the, on the last leg of the journey. Oh, wow. um, Thomas had learned to play the harp, and he eventually was playing the harp in Salt Lake for various events and that's how he made his money mm. and Brigham Young would have him come to events social events and he'd play his harp wow uh, he had, had a harp uh, it got broken and Brigham Young had a new one made for him wow and you can see that harp in DUP Museum down in Salt Lake wow. yeah. Some of these stories connect in a very personal way. James Hendricks is one of my wife's great-great-grandfathers. I think he's fourth great-grandfather. He was born in Kentucky in 1808. He married Drusilla Doris, and he was one of the early Missouri settlers. When he joined the church, they moved to Missouri, and so they faced off with the mobs. There was a battle of Crooked River where uh, James went out with some of the other brethren to fight off the mob. And he was shot, and the, the bullet went through his neck and resulted in being paralyzed from the shoulders down. Oh, my. Impl- shoulders down. Yeah.
0: And this is 1840. Yeah, this would have been
1: 1842, 43, somewhere about that. Wow. Okay. The story that is recorded in family records and stories, you know, is about him being wounded and being cared for at one of the saints' houses and then coming back to his wife. Then about the challenges that they then faced. So they evacuated Missouri and went to Nauvoo. In Nauvoo, the Council of Seventy gave James and his wife a piece of property near the temple where they built a guest house. They evacuated, went to Council Bluffs, Winter Quarters. And then the next year, in the big company behind Brigham Young, they came. The family story gets kind of mixed up here. There's part of the story that says that James was made a captain of some number of folks in the wagon train. I couldn't find that that was written down anywhere. Mm. But he would have had responsibility of kind of managing, getting the group together and stuff like that. Drusilla, his wife says in her journal, she had to help him dress every day and help him the rest of the day. In 1839, that they left Missouri and went to Quincy and then eventually to Nauvoo. Drusilla states that James could turn on his elbows, turn his feet out of bed and began to take things in one hand. He could barely walk with crutches during the time of the trek in 1847. Mm. Uh, someone would help lift or pull him into the wagon. Eliza R. Snow's journal has this curious entry. He said, This morning, Captain P, that, I don't know who Captain P was, had a vote called on the case of Brother Hendricks. He is thrown out of his place by vote. What? And my brother-in-law, Jim, is a uh, seminary institute teacher in (laughs) St. Louis in Missouri, and we've speculated a lot on what this means. We think that what happens is that the wagon trains, as they would form up in the morning, Mm -hmm. would have an assigned place, and they would rotate those so that you weren't always in the back in the dust and you get moved up to the front. Mm. But you had to be ready to get in line... When you take off,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I think the brother Hendrix's team was always late. <laughs> and so they said, you're not going to be in the front anymore. You oh. go to the back. Uh, anyway, that was Eliza R. Snow's uh, uh, story. Uh, oh, my gosh. It's, uh, it's interesting. They made it across, and the bathhouse at Warm Springs in North Salt Lake the church built that, and Brother and Sister Hendrix were assigned to manage that. But Drusilla Doris hated it. Well, I don't know if she hated it, but she said that after working there for so many years, they decided to bail on that, and they moved to Richmond, just here north in North Cache Valley. Mm. She said after working there, we didn't have $5 from it. Oh. Um, I think they had to put in a lot of free labor there. Oh. But... The you know the story is that during the uh, battle with the crickets, uh, James would uh, get down on his stomach and pull himself along down the rows of corn, and just pound on the crickets with his hands and doing the best job he could
0: to kill them.
1: To kill them. Oh my to gosh. Fight fight them off.
0: Oh um, dear. This is when all the crickets came in and then the seagulls came. Right. right? right that big story. Right. Yeah,
1: that's, that's part of the, the family lore. Wow. And it's certainly consistent with how we kind of think how mobile he was. So when it says uh, paralyzed the neck down, well, maybe not quite the neck, but. Uh, yeah,
0: uh, quadriplegic. Yeah. So all of his limbs are affected. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: These stories reinforce over and over to me that these were not exalted beings. Uh, mm-hmm. They were people like you and me. They were people first, mm-hmm. trying to be saints, trying to achieve, you know, the uh, sense of Zion. But anyway, you know, it's, they're just fascinating stories. Some of them are documented in church literature, in the uh, Sunday school manual, or sometimes in the uh, Ensign or, you know, as inspirational stories. Mm-hmm. When we just look at these as a source of inspiration, we miss so much of the richness of mm-hmm. what was going on, and that these were real people. You know, sometimes they really struggled with stuff, and they were, yeah. you know, uh, this sort of suggests that uh, uh, Thomas never complained, or that Brother mm-hmm. Hendricks never never said a bad thing about the brethren, uh, or Drusilla, his wife,
0: mm-hmm. just
1: was heroic,
0: patient, and humble, and and, and support yeah. the
1: brethren. I don't think she liked working at the bathhouse in Salt Lake yeah that right. you know, was a freebie for anybody that wanted to come in and soak in the hot tub and mm-hmm. she had to take care of it I think there were some downsides to it and yeah. uh, so the humanity I think sometimes gets lost yeah but uh, thank anyway. you for that
0: it can be really hard have you heard the phrase inspiration porn yeah, yeah. okay Stella's was- one of my
1: heroes <laughs> I want her to sign an autograph. Oh, oh my I don't gosh. To do It
0: yeah. <laughs> it can be She'll really hard <laughs> to explain why that's a problem. And yeah, you said it well. It takes the humanity away from people when we like put them up on these pedestals and they're untouchable. Like, yeah, well, they're people too. And if we do that, then we can't see the barriers that they face to help break down those barriers yeah, for other people. Yeah. yeah it's no, a
1: good point. Big problem. Good point. Well, thank you. Oh, it's been so fun to visit with you. Thanks so much for yeah. driving up here in the snow. And, oh
0: my uh, gosh, this has been wonderful. Have, have
1: such a great conversation. And, yeah. And, and thank you for bringing me back to this. It's, of course. It's been a, a lot of fun.
0: And are you still thinking about, like, the goal of this project is to eventually get it online for people I'd, I'd to access? I'd really like to
1: get, uh, I'm hoping as I kind of move into a retirement or a semi-retirement phase in my uh, career to kind of come back to this and tidy it all up and and in
0: your retirement you're not going to retire is that what i'm hearing
1: (laughs) i mean i get paid for it uh but but i uh want to tidy this up and make it available online or in some kind of uh, accessible format so that people can get access to it
0: very cool we we support you we really hope that you do it maybe we can help you one day (laughs) i need (laughs) proofreaders i would love that i honestly would love that Do you have any other recommendations for people who want to learn more about disability in the church or
1: about these pioneers? uh, Sure. So I was very honored to do a lecture for the Saints Project, a series that was done by the church history department. Mm -hmm. And you can Google that. There's a video of that presentation. Mm. So we were able to put together several of these stories in a lot more detail and provide those as a narrative. So that's available in church archives. Okay. Many of these stories came from the Overland Trails database, mm-hmm. and that's part of the family history department's resources, the family search resources, and you can find those. You can do searches now mm-hmm. right on that database the same way we did. And yeah. I will not be surprised at all if somebody goes in there and types the word blind and comes up with different hits than mm-hmm. we had. Yeah. Sometimes the term was used allegorically, yeah. not meaning physically I'm able to see but I'm hoping that any of your listeners say well you forgot the story or do you have the story about my great 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 granduncle's cousin's first wife about how she had you know whatever I'll give you my email address yeah, so that you can do that if any of your li- listeners have uh, stories about their ancestors who were had some kind of limitation on the planes, so I'd love to hear about it mm-hmm. they can email me at mbfifield, F-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. <laughs> and I, I will be thrilled to see what they come up with.
0: Yeah, this is a work in progress, and we'd appreciate your participation.
1: It does give me great satisfaction to be able to write back to a listener and say, yep, we got that one, thank <laughs> you. But more often than not... You don't think
0: not, I've heard about this? <laughs> more, often,
1: more often than not, it's sometimes we, we don't have that one. Oh, and, love uh, it. be fun, so...
0: Love it. Well, thank you again. This was a treasure to be with you again. Well, today. thanks, Katie. Thank you so much. Thank you to our readers and listeners as well for supporting us while we do our best to support you and learn more alongside you. You can follow Holy Human on Facebook, Instagram, and you can email us as well, Holy Human Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, Holy is spelled w-h-o-l-y we're also on patreon if you want to support the podcast please find us there and you can donate a couple bucks every month to help us keep this show going we also want to thank Mativ and Setunaman for our intro and outro music and our interlude music we accessed both songs through freesound.org thanks everyone